David Attenborough is quoted as saying that of his nearly 70-year-long career, the single most revelatory three minutes was the first time he put on scuba gear and dived a coral reef. The appeal of this sport is no wonder then, with over 28 million paddy diver certifications worldwide. But like with a number of sports, this one isn't without risk. The British Subaqua Club, in their 2021 diving incident report, had 235 diving incidents reported to them, 17 of which were fatalities. And numbers are still lower than pre-pandemic levels, so this may continue to rise slightly. Whilst this doesn't sound like a huge amount, these can often be highly reversible and treatable pathologies where pre-hospital recognition and management can be really impactful to the care of these patients. So if you can't tell your decompression sickness from your arterial gas embolism, if you're not sure how to find your nearest hyperbaric oxygen chamber, and if you don't know why it's called the Benz, then join us in our deep dive into diving emergencies. Ambulance General Broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. So hello and welcome to General Broadcast. My name is Josh and thank you for joining us for another episode. It's a slightly different feel this month. We are interviewing a number of specialist guests and I've got one such guest with me here today. So I'm joined by John. Hi John, thanks for joining us. Uh, Would you tell us a little bit about who you are and what we're going to be talking about this month? Uh, Yeah, thanks for having me today. Uh, My name is John Kendray. I'm a Senior Coastal Operations Officer for His Majesty's Coast Guard. Uh, That's a bit of a mouthful. Uh, I'm an Operations Officer uh, looking after teams in the Torbay area in South Devon. Great. And just for people that may not be familiar with exactly the involvement of of what the Coast Guard provide and and, uh, the intricacies of of your role, what what sort of things do you end up doing, John? What what sort of jobs do you and I end up working together on uh, as we've been on more than more than a few cases together? All right, so so varied. Uh, any emergency that you can imagine happening at the coast uh, will be involved in, from uh, walkers who have slipped and fallen to uh, persons in difficulty in the sea. The Coast Guard cover a much wider area of business as well, including international search and rescue and uh, search and rescue right out halfway to America across the Atlantic and halfway to uh, our European neighbour uh, search and rescue regions as well. Excellent. And so today, as people will know from the title of the podcast, we're talking about dive emergencies. And this is something that you approached us about after a a CPD day that you very kindly arranged and uh, invited us to. And it was an absolutely fantastic day of learning. What was the what was the inspiration for that day? And what was the inspiration for the podcast? Uh, There was quite a big lead up to it, really, uh, to give a bit more about my backgrounds. Uh, Originally, I worked in the operations room at MRCC Brixham, helping to coordinate search and rescue. I dealt with lots and lots of dive-related incidents uh, in the operations room. Busy summer's day could involve uh, missing divers, sadly deceased divers, uh, bent divers, which we'll talk more about later. And and it just seemed to go on and on and on. And I probably uh, developed a bit of a biased view towards diving that was perhaps a bit negative because uh, I only ever dealt with the, the negative implications and, and when things didn't quite go to plan. Since then, I've worked out on the coast, mainly in the role of incident commander of coastal incidents. I've dealt with lots of dive jobs again, 
most of which have been very serious, unfortunately, some, some fatalities, and uh, all of them have been quite challenging. So partly to increase my own knowledge and become more comfortable with dealing with this type of incidents, but I also noticed a real disparity between the knowledge and capabilities and procedures of the different people on scene and the different agencies on scene. And I really wanted to make everybody's life easier by getting everybody together, getting everybody onto the same page and really generating a common focus that would make it easier on scene for those dive related incidents. Excellent. And and that was definitely achieved uh, during the day. It was a fantastic day. And uh, it was it was absolutely one of those days where you you don't realize how little you know until you're sat there going oh my god like i i'm so lucky i haven't been to one of these incidents because i definitely would have made some errors and mistakes so we're going to try our best to condense that day's worth of education and there's some brilliant practical elements at the end of the day where the the many agencies that were there could uh reflect on each other's roles and uh you you, you put some really good sim together as well as uh, as well as the theory so we're going to try and condense that day down into a podcast are you going to be running more days do you think it's something that you're going to be able to roll out as sort of a national curriculum or or is it just going to be the ad hoc we're definitely going to push for more. I think we're almost uniquely placed. Almost every incident that we get involved in, in the Coast Guard, is multi-agency. If, if somebody is injured, there'll be ambulance service and other clinicians on scene. If somebody is missing, there'll be police officer, officers on scene. If there's a technical rescue, we'll deal with the likes of Heart and the Fire and Rescue Service. Um, so for me, it's really about the Coast Guard helping to bring all those people together, because if we work together, we should be training together. Uh, we have got a few other bits in the pipeline. We're going to try and work towards another CPD day uh, surrounding uh, falls from height and the kind of trauma and rescue implications for those types of incidents. Uh, but really, we're looking for ideas. So if anyone has ideas about uh, multi-agency learning that we can do, especially real practical sim things, which is you know where, where most of the best learning happens, um, we'll be keen to run more, definitely. Excellent. So let's get started then. And just before we get into the start of this episode, I just wanted to say, if you're listening on Spotify, either now or before you finish listening, just take a look in this episode information. You'll see a poll and a couple of questions that we'd like you to leave some answers to. This is super, super helpful for us to know what's useful to you, what you liked about certain episodes and helps inform what subjects you want us to produce for you in the future so that we're producing highly relevant CPD. So those of you that left feedback on the Human Factors podcast, thanks so much, Adam, Kylie, Elliot, Barney, Mark. That was all really, really helpful uh, and we really, really appreciate it. If you're not listening on Spotify, you can leave reviews and comments on iTunes. That's again, really helpful to us and helps get this podcast out to new listeners. And as always, you can give us feedback on the website or via email, generalbroadcastpodcast at outlook.com. Okay, let's get started. Prior to doing this CPD day, diving wasn't really a world that I had any idea about. The notion of different types of divers and even different gas mixtures was totally foreign to me. So to start this episode, I thought it was important to give a little overview of exactly who we're talking about. That left me then with another dilemma. Who can I ask all these questions to? 
Well, it just so happens that the answer wasn't too far away from me. An emergency care assistant I'd worked some events with over the summer happened to be the very person that I was looking for. Tony Norton is a professional dive instructor with over 20 years of experience teaching in the field. She's taught nearly every type of diving that you could name, from six-year-olds first snorkeling lessons to now running a business that specialises in teaching deep water technical diving instructors. Who better then to give me an introduction to this incredible but strange underwater world? At the very sort of beginning of people's diving journeys, we have the sort of junior divers who are generally, depending on agency, there are a number of agencies worldwide, uh, generally they're allowed to dive from around about the age of eight, and that's always in a confined area or pool area, with entry-level diving being allowed from the age of about 10. Then going up through the ages, there are some uh, depth restrictions depending on the agency. But typically your entry-level course will allow the majority of divers to dive in the 18 to 20 meter range. And that's typically on dry, filtered, compressed air. Uh, The next level up from there is then sort of like an advanced entry level course. And that typically will allow people to dive up to a maximum of 30 to 35 meters and will give them an insight to some of the other types of diving that might be available. So here in the UK, typically people at that point might learn to dry suit dive if they haven't learned to dry suit dive at entry level. And they just get a bit more of um, an insight into some of the deeper diving, a bit of navigation um, and learning some specific skills that they might then further develop later on. Beyond that, then uh, you have rescue training. um, And again, this is agency specific because some of the agencies will incorporate it throughout self-rescues taught by all agencies from the beginning but the more specific rescue type training where you can go and rescue another diver is typically taught extensively or more extensively at this level and then there are a number of specialties and if you can imagine doing something underwater there'll be a specialty for it with one of the agencies so anything from dry seat diving to ice diving to altitude diving deep diving enriched air nitrox diving where you have a normal dry filtered compressed air that has added oxygen and again that's within defined limits depending on agency Uh, some will allow you to breathe up to 40 percent oxygen there are all sorts of programs there i think there's a a, some sort of mermaid program (laughs) all sorts of other things like if you can imagine a program being there for it photography recs everything you kind of look at that level um of training which gives people a bit more of an insight and will typically allow people to do no decompression diving uh, up to depending on agency again between 40 and 50 meters where we say no decompression diving this is um, a type of diving that allows you typically to come straight to the surface if you had an issue or if you decided you um, no longer wanted to be on the dive or if you were running low on gas, typically you could come up to a safety stop depth between three and six metres where you would do a three-minute safety stop just for conservatism before you then make your way to the surface. Beyond that then, there are two sort of quite clear paths. One is the, the sort of teaching and training path, so the professional path, and then the other route which goes down the more technical diving route if you like 
what I mean by technical diving is diving where you can't come straight to the surface. So this may be due to a hard overhead limit. So for example, if you're inside a wreck or inside a cave or a soft overhead limit where you can't come to the surface because you've got a decompression obligation, which means that because of the pressures that we're diving at and the time that we're there, your body is taking on enough inert gas in different tissues that you then need to make a staged ascent to the surface, which we call stage decompression diving. And there typically you might find divers who are carrying multiple different gases, but may also be using gas that we know as trimix, which is a mix of nitrogen, oxygen, and helium, where helium is used to offset the narcotic effects of nitrogen. Just to give people a, a bit of an idea of what that hobbyist dive might look like, because you've you've said non-decompression dives and, and started to explain it there. Um, yeah. So a, a typical, say, ho- hobbyist dive who's done their p- paddy course, which I would assume perhaps wrongly re- resembles or, or represents the majority of, of divers around the UK, would it be people that, that haven't done these technical drive it? diving courses and are just breathing compressed air yeah so it's typically a sort of pyramid shape so you'll have a number of divers who will start at entry level whether that be open water with paddy or sdi or ocean diver with bezac and then some of those divers will decide to then continue on their training so at every higher level you get a smaller number of divers diving at that level so i would I would suspect the majority of people who have a qualification that allow them to dive without a professional will probably be sitting at that level or at the next stage, which is the advanced open water, advanced adventure diver or sports diver with BZAC. So they'll typically have done the first two courses because it just enables them to do so much more. And whether or not they're then nitrox trained, um, so enriched air nitrox trained, will be very dependent on the on the type of places they've been diving. The benefit of nitrox is the increased oxygen, which actually the, the benefit is really the reduced nitrogen. The nitrogen as an inert gas is taken on by our tissues under pressure. And that's what then will come out of our tissues when we ascend. And that's where the problems can lie with decompression sickness. If you're on gassing too much nitrogen and your slower tissues have taken on nitrogen that you can't get rid of quickly enough on ascent, that can then cause bubbles. The benefit of the enriched air nitrox is actually the, the lower partial pressure of nitrogen at depth. How how long will a hobbyist diver stay down for roughly? So what will their dive look like? You, you've said that at some point they'll come up and hold uh, around about three to six meters for, for, for uh, that off-gassing yeah. stage or that safety. So that's approach. more, a, that's at that level, that's really just a, a safety precaution. So um, they shouldn't need it. It really depends on their gas consumption. Um, typically, if you go out on a boat, let's say, for example, you go out to the Caribbean and you go on a tour and you have a dive guide, you would typically expect those divers to be doing 30 to 60 minutes. And it depends on the depth. So the deeper you go, the, the regulators deliver the gas at the pressure that you're at. So the deeper you go, the quicker you use the gas in your cylinder. 
as well as also having shorter no decompression limits. So for example, um, if you were diving to 30 meters, you might only have a dive time of 20 or so minutes. Whereas if you're diving to seven or eight meters, you may have 45 minutes to an hour. Okay, because of the different relative pressures at those depths. And just the fact that divers will start getting cold. They're not used to being underwater for that long. You know, they'll need to, they won't want to be that underwater for too long. Typically, I would say 30 30 minutes to an hour for a a sort of holiday recreational diver. Uh, And then, so you've said how some more experienced divers then might dive on nitrox perhaps to extend that time. How how is that different to the types of diving that that you do, Tony? Because your dives, uh, w- would you give us a, an, an overview of of your last dive for for comparison? Mike, would you like my last dive or a more exciting dive? <laughs> uh, no, go on the, the the more exciting one, the okay. one we were talking about off air. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so I was very lucky recently to be invited along um, to an expedition up in Shetland off a boat called Valhalla. And our goal was to go and dive some marks that had been identified by some historians. Long story short, the weather didn't really play ball. But on the last day, we were very lucky to be able to dive a submarine, which was a World War I mine-laying submarine. And there were five of us in the dive team. And we were all diving on closed-circuit rebreathers, which... I guess to put it at a really high level is a as an automated electronic machine that mixes gas for us to give us the optimum gas at every depth that we dive at. But it also means that the amount of gas we have to carry is much lower because it's cycled round, goes through a chemical scrubber, um, and then is re-blended. So it, it basically uh, continues to add the oxygen that we've metabolized while getting rid of the carbon dioxide. So so this is different to Trimix? So there is Trimix in there as well. So it has a diluent side a cylinder and an oxygen cylinder. And we make a decision on what those the diluent side is, depending on the depth that we're planning to go to, uh, taking into account the narcotic effects of the nitrogen that we're breathing. So it's a closed circuit system. So there's, there are no bubbles when you're breathing off it normally. So that dive was onto the German World War I mine-laying sub, the UC-55, which lay in 105 to 110 metres of water off the southeast coast of Shetland. So the water temperature was relatively chilly. Uh, It took us 25 minutes to get down to the bottom and do our dive. And then it took two and a half hours to make our way back to the surface, ensuring that we did the adequate stops to ensure that we off-gassed the inert gases, which were a combination of helium and nitrogen on our ascent. God, that sounds like an awful lot of work (laughs) (laughs) just to get down there. (laughs) Yeah, well, getting down's the easy bit. Well, yeah, there you go. It's coming back up that's a bit more challenging. And I guess that the final type of diving that I've I've read about, which I appreciate is perhaps not something that, that you do a lot, it would be surface-fed diving. So what type yeah. of divers uh, have a surface-fed air source? So um, it's not a type of diving I'm particularly familiar with, and I've never done it myself. So the surface-supplied divers tend to be divers at work. So you'll see some of the 
divers who are working sort of HSE style work, but also people who are working on at great depth, so saturation divers or divers who are there for a long period of time. So they're, they're likely to be this sort of deep water, uh, n- not something we're likely to encounter as a land-based medic, if anything. From what I understand, the majority of the divers who are working at that kind of depth will have medical team available to them. That is my okay. understanding. Cool. And then so the the natural question that people might be thinking is, do well, do you know which type of diver is more likely to get into trouble? Who, who if we're going to see uh, a, a, a diver presenting to us with a diving injury or diving illness, is it likely to be those weekend uh, hobbyists or is it likely to be the people that are doing the very technical and I, I guess very risky diving that, that you do? Yeah, I'm, it's quite, I mean, it's a really difficult question. And I've spoken to a number of other people in the industry and everyone I've spoken to has given me a different answer. So it's difficult. The, I think the presentations you're likely to see are different. So where with your hobbyist divers, you might have someone who has a panic attack and at the, at depth and decides they don't want to be there or just decides they don't want to be there and they bolt to the surface holding their breath, you may have something like a lung overexpansion injury. That's a completely different type of incident that you might then see, for example, with a, a technical diver where one of the most avoidable documented types of incident could be hyperoxia where they've switched onto the wrong gas at the wrong depth um, and therefore uh, are breathing off something that gives them an oxygen toxicity hit. Equally, you might have rebreather divers who manage to get in the water somehow not having completed their checks appropriately, who then become hypoxic because their oxygen cylinders are not turned on or their rebreathers aren't appropriate, working as appropriate. But then you've got all of the medical things that you just can't attribute really to diving but then if you're called out to a diver is making sure that you don't discount the fact that they may have just had a medical issue underwater it's quite difficult to say what's the most typical thing because I know over the last few years I've have friends of mine or people that I know who have returned from holiday who've had a niggling joint pain which has turned out to be decompression sickness that they've just kind of ignored through to people who have had a medical issue underwater. The result of that is that, you know, they're underwater if they lose consciousness and lose their breathing apparatus, whichever type they might be on. That generally doesn't work out too well for them. My final question would be, how how aware are divers of diving-related illnesses? So we definitely teach it at entry level. <laughs> um Unfortunately, we do see people who come through the system who uh, seem to have somehow got their certification without much learning having been undertaken. So I would expect the majority of divers would be able to recognise that they might have decompression sickness or potentially a lung overexpansion injury, which we tend to kind of group together as decompression illness. But it's also well recorded and documented that the first one of the first 
things um, with someone who has decompression sickness is that they are adamant that they haven't got it. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah, they really don't like to admit that there's something wrong. The majority of divers should have had training to to recognize the symptoms. You know, they they wouldn't necessarily recognize other medical issues that could be due to having been diving. So, for example, we're seeing more, or I've heard of more cases of uh, IPOs, immersion pulmonary edemas, over the last five years, I would say five to seven years, than I had in the previous 10 Mm. years of diving. So, you know, that was something that we'd never taught before. But decompression sickness, so the bend, is something that most, if not all divers, should be aware of. So for the main segment of this podcast, I went down to Plymouth to visit DDRC Healthcare. They're a not-for-profit organisation who are world specialists in diving medicine and hyperbaric oxygen therapy and have produced and continue to produce a significant amount of research in the field. They operate the British Hyperbaric Association Helpline, a 24-7 number offering remote clinical advice to divers and clinicians dealing with diving emergencies, as well as access and referral to the National Network of Hyperbaric Units. I was able to sit down with Dr. Felix Wood, one of the advisors for diving emergencies, and I started off by asking him exactly how he got into this interesting area of medicine. So um, I'm an emergency medicine registrar. I've been in the southwest for the last uh, five years or so, and normally I'm working at Derriford Hospital in Plymouth, which, um, as you know, is just across the road from where we're sat now at DDRC. So that's my day job. And then since working there, I have had an interest in diving previously and thought that uh, getting involved in diving medicine would be an interesting um, sort of sideshow from the day job. So I have been uh, working here at DDRC um, sort of around the main full-time job and then going through a variety of courses and qualifications which has now enabled me to be on the on-call rotor for dive emergencies which a variety of doctors cover so that there's um, that is held 24-7 and there'll always be someone to call if you need. Cool. Are you a diver yourself? Do you... So I've done a bit of diving, but yeah. uh, never in the UK and only in uh, tropical places. Only when it's warm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Brilliant. So uh, the what we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk a bit about the pathology of diving illnesses. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about decompression illness or decompression sickness, and we'll come on to talk about uh, exactly what that involves in a second. The risk factors involved before we finally go down if it's all right and have a little look at the decompression chamber and and, and tell people about uh, when patients may come to you and, yeah, and great. how we get access, access to that. But first, let's start with not that much of an easy subject, which I think it's useful to, in the context of this discussion, define some gas laws. Yep. So often when you uh, are looking at this diving related sickness and stuff, Boyle's law comes up and Henry's law comes up. So could you define those as simply for me as you could? Absolutely. So, um, so Boyle's law is the uh, law that relates pressure to volume. And the simplest way to think about that is if you took a balloon of gas down under the sea to 10 metres of seawater, which is the equivalent of one extra atmosphere, the pressure on that balloon has gone from one atmosphere to two atmospheres. And the volume of that balloon will 
become half what it was at the surface. And if you continue to descend, the volume will continue to decrease. The important thing to realize is that the biggest change happens in the first few meters nearest the surface, which means that your volume change related uh, conditions can happen even in relatively shallow dives. Okay, and then Henry's law? So Henry's law um, is the one that states that the amount of dissolved gas in a solution is related to the partial pressure of that gas above the solution. And the simplest way to think about Henry's law is to imagine a can of Coke. So a can of Coke is CO2. And in general, when we're thinking about diving problems, we're largely thinking about nitrogen, but it's the same effect. So the CO2 is compressed above the surface of the drink. And that's why when your can of Coke feels tense, and when you open that, the pressure decreases. And because the pressure has decreased, that gas tries to come out of the solution. And that's when you get the bubbles forming in your can of Coke. And okay. that's exactly the same as when you decrease the pressure, having dissolved a lot of nitrogen in your bloodstream from diving uh, or breathing pressurized gas. As you ascend, that gas tries to come out of solution. Great. So Boyle's law, the deeper we go, the more pressure that is above us, the more condensed the gas becomes. So Boyle's law... Um, the volume reduces as the pressure increases. Yeah. So gas-filled spaces will be squashed. Right. And then Henry's law, the greater the pressure is on top, the more a gas will dissolve into a solution. Yes. Fine. Which will all become relevant when we start talking about decompression illness and, and decompression sickness. So would you be able to describe exactly what that is? So there's there's a number of terms that I think get thrown around. So I think decompression illness describes decompression sickness, the bends, and an arterial gas embolism. Yeah. But they're different. They are. Could you just talk about that for us? Yes. So um, decompression illness, as you rightly described, refers to two separate but similar conditions, one of which is decompression sickness, which is caused by evolved gas, which we typically as we've just described from Henry's law, is gas coming out of solution. And arterial gas embolism, which is typically due to barrage trauma, bubbles of gas getting into the wrong place. And we can talk about what each of those might look like and, and the various um, uh, stories that might point us in, in one direction or the other. Mm-hmm. But decompression illness refers to both of those conditions collectively okay. because sometimes they coexist and sometimes we can't make up our mind which one we're talking about for okay. a given patient. So they're not strictly a continuum? Is it is it wrong to think? Because in my mind, I had them as a bit of a continuum. The arterial gas embolus is a more severe version of the bends, but is that not strictly true? No, I, I would typically think of them as um, separate conditions mm-hmm. which can coexist. Okay, cool. So decompression sickness, the bends, what what's happening there? What's happening... Fine. So, so decompression sickness is caused by bubbles coming out of solution in the wrong place. And the way that happens for a diver is, if you imagine the diver's at the surface breathing one atmosphere of air, um, and we'll talk about air diving uh, or, or divers breathing air because that's the most um, the straight most straightforward and the most common gas mix that they're likely to be using. As they descend, 
the partial pressure of nitrogen that they're breathing in and out is increased. And because of that, more nitrogen dissolves in their bloodstream. Once they've been at depth for a period of time, that reaches an equilibrium. But what that means is that as they start to ascend, their blood is super saturated with nitrogen and that nitrogen starts to come out of solution and form bubbles. If that happens slowly, then those bubbles are generally filtered out by the lungs. And in fact, even in patients without any symptoms, or even in divers without any symptoms, who have done safe dive profiles, experimentally, we can quite often pick up those bubbles. Mm -hmm. Um, But generally, they don't cause any problems. They only cause problems either if they've got into the wrong place, or there are so many of them that they start to have impacts on the various bits of the body where they might end up. Okay. Often the terms on-gassing and off-gassing come up when sort of discussing this element. So is on-gassing is that phase of descent, is it? So there's relatively more nitrogen that they're dissolving into their blood as they descend and stay at depth. And then as they ascend, what is off-gassing? So how how does... Yeah, so so on-gassing is the process by which more nitrogen is dissolving into the bloodstream. And as you've identified, that is on descent. And as you spend increasingly long duration at at depth, mm-hmm. and then off gassing is the opposite of that process. So as you ascend, the partial pressure of nitrogen that you're breathing decreases, and that gas starts to come out of solution. Okay, and and that's the the theory behind safety stops, is it that you you stop during your ascent to ensure that you can off-gas nitrogen? Is that the principle? That's right. So the the principle behind safe dive tables is that you don't ascend faster than you can dissipate the nitrogen that's coming out of solution. So you'll notice that um, most divers ascend quite slowly. And then an additional safety measure is that they will wait under a small amount of pressure, so typically at a depth of three to five metres, for a few minutes and that acts as an extra safety mechanism to get rid of some more nitrogen before they surface and reduce the pressure further to one atmosphere okay and is there like a classic classic story of a diver that gets the bends is there is there a you know a a classic history an mi might have that central crushing Mm. chest pain that with a comorbid history of cardiovascular disease is there like a classic dive pattern that you hear time and time again yeah so so that's one of the really difficult and interesting things about our job is that patients can develop decompression sickness even doing what we think of as usually safe diving without any obvious risk factors given what we've talked about it will be kind of obvious to you that if a patient if a diver has been at depth for a long time or at an increased depth, both of those things are going to increase the amount of nitrogen that is dissolved in the blood. So a absolutely classic story of someone who has um, developed decompression sickness is they've done multiple dives and that's an increase that increases your risk because you don't quite clear all that nitrogen for a number of hours um, at the surface. So they've done a number of dives over the last few days. They've done some quite deep dives and quite long dives, and then they have ascended possibly too quickly for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Um, And then following that, they developed some symptoms. Um, And the difficulty is that these symptoms can be broad and wide-ranging and relate to 
where those bubbles are in the system. We typically think of decompression sickness developing in the hours following diving. Okay. And I think we define it as within the first 72 hours, but the risk of it developing sort of decreases over that time. Mm -hmm. So most commonly, people will have developed symptoms 24 hours um, after coming to the surface. So yeah, the typical story might be sort of one to six hours after coming to the surface, they've developed whatever symptoms it is that they've noticed. And those are related to the body system where these bubbles are. So commonly joint pain, that's one of the classic things that we think about. And that's why decompression sickness is called the bends, because when it was first identified in workers who were building the foundations of bridges under pressure and then coming to the surface, they were bent double in pain. And that's where the, the phrase the bends comes from. But these bubbles might be elsewhere and lead to a variety of other symptoms. So if they're in the skin, they can lead to either painful or painless rashes and a sort of marbled appearance of the skin. If they're in the central nervous system, they might lead to some stroke-like symptoms or some neurological deficits. If they're in the inner ear, they might lead to some balance problems and often associated with sort of nausea and vertigo. And then there's also a an idea, something called constitutional symptoms, which are a bit more vague. Um, and it might just be not quite feeling themselves, being a bit forgetful, acting slightly oddly. It's not 100% clear exactly how that relates to decompression sickness, but we do know that there's a subset of patients who have those symptoms who seem to improve when we treat them for decompression sickness. Okay, so that's just feeling a bit weird after a dive and just generally unwell, I guess. Exactly. While we're talking about symptoms, one of the I suppose red flags that is often talked about or comes up a lot in the literature is this description of girdle pain or pain around the sort of abdomen radiating through or round to the back. What's all that about? So um, girdle pain is a really important symptom to recognise. Um, and the main reason for that is because we know that patients who present with girdle pain, which as you describe is sort of pain typically ac across the lower back and, and hip area, we know that a, a significant proportion of them go on to develop spinal symptoms. And if someone uh, comes in with girdle pain, we'll have a low threshold for treating them because obviously if we can avoid them developing a spinal cord deficit, that is a very significant potential benefit for their, for their morbidity from avoiding them developing a potentially lifelong severely limiting condition so as in spinal symptoms like paralysis then or exactly yeah oh, so, right, so okay. symptoms very similar to a spinal stroke okay coming back to the joint pain then mm. because this is a really common pro probably the symptom people are most familiar with mm. just clarifying my understanding that pain comes from physical bubbles within the joint space is that right exactly yeah so so the idea is that these bubbles have formed um, from the synovial fluid in within the joint. And that, uh, as you can imagine, is sort of trying to expand that joint space in a way that um, it's not designed to expand and that is excruciatingly painful. Um, okay. And the typical way that that's described is a pain which doesn't change on movement. And it might be more commonly reported in the shoulder is the kind of the classic location 
but um, any 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 joint can develop decompression sickness type symptoms. We often get people ringing with a bit of joint pain following diving. It's sometimes challenging for us to decide whether we think this is a standard musculoskeletal sprain or a joint bend, and uh, that's not always it's not always easy to do. And sometimes, if we're not 100% sure, we might end up treating them for that. And if they get better with the treatment that we've given them for DCS, it's only subsequently that we can say that that was probably our diagnosis. So we've talked about, as, as far as symptoms go, symptoms that you might get are related to where the bubbles have lodged or where the, where, where the gas is misplaced. So we've talked about constitutional symptoms, joint pain, you've just talked about rash and edema and, and that rash, is it is it an erythema type rash or is it so yeah is it obvious it's not obvious um and it's typically just you know as as any healthcare professional know rashes can be really tricky to see what's going on um so it's typically described as a marbling type rash um and if you if you google that you know you'll you'll get a number of um, images um so in theory it, it looks reasonably characteristic like that the difficulty is that um you know people can get skin changes after diving for um, a variety of reasons whether it's um, they then get in a, a hot shower or um, they've had something called suit squeeze which is where they fail to equalize the pressure in their dry suit and essentially get vacuum packed as they go under pressure okay and then they come up with this sort of thin bruises which is all related to where the the, the seams of their dry suit are um, and experienced divers will see that and say um you know, I felt like I was vacuum packed and now I've got this and I don't have any other symptoms and I think it's suit squeeze. Um, but it can be difficult for us to um, come up with that diagnosis over the phone and, mm-hmm. um, without seeing it and doing a full examination of the patient. Okay. And you said that they may have some neurological symptoms, poor balance, vertigo type symptoms. What about loss of consciousness and collapse? Is that a feature of the bends? So it certainly can be. So if you're... Um, if your central nervous circulation is overwhelmed with bubbles, you can become unconscious and collapse. The difficulty is that in the acute phase, it's going to be very difficult to establish whether that's um, what's gone on. And we also touched on uh, risk factors. So you, you mentioned about repetitive diving, longer, deeper dives all increase your your risk of developing the bends and um, and not not adequately off-gassing what about cold and dehydration so those are a a couple of things that were highlighted as risk factors why why is that the case yeah so it's um it's sort of slightly theoretical as to why those things seem to increase your risk of suffering from decompression sickness but as you identified um diving in the cold diving while dehydrated and also having a particularly unexpected increased exertion at depth so we uh we would be more cautious if someone gave a story of they went they went down to depth and then they were swimming hard against the current which they wouldn't normally do that's something that we would think of as a risk factor for um decompression of sickness and essentially the thinking behind why those things might increase your risk is to do with the ratio of on gassing to off gassing so 
increasing your exertion means that you're breathing faster, which means that you might on gas more quickly. And then if you ascend at your standard profile, you've got more risk of bubble formation because you've got more dissolved gas to start with. And I think, or my understanding is that cold means that you might off gas more slowly because you've got peripheral vasoconstriction. That makes sense. Um, and I'm not then... 100% sure if it's correct, but it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds like you know what you're talking about. I think it's one of those things, it's, it's not that well understood. Right, okay. Um, and it's... people have these theoretical ideas as to why it is, and it probably does somewhat increase your risk. Okay. But it's really difficult to kind of define that as the case. Yeah. Okay. And finally, there's a, I guess, from what we were talking about off air, uh, this is a retrospective risk factor, but this would be people with unknown or known patent for Amen Avale or PFOs. Why is that a risk factor and, and yeah, how, how does that affect divers? Yeah. So the reason that a PFO might increase your risk of we'll just refer to them as that. <laughs> the reason that it might increase your risk is because in general um, during off-gassing so during ascent from depth um, these bubbles that we've been talking about form on the venous side of the circulation and in general they are filtered out by the lungs because they pass through small capillaries and have a chance to be sort of reabsorbed into the alveoli and then breathed out if there's a direct connection, such as a PFO, between the right side of the heart and the left side of the heart, these bubbles don't pass through that pulmonary filter, which means that they can end up in the arterial side of the circulation, and you're more at risk of symptoms from that, um, particularly central nervous system type symptoms. And as you've correctly identified, a proportion of the population are walking around with undiagnosed PFOs. And if we have people who we think haven't done anything particularly risky and have still developed symptoms of decompression sickness, quite often we will subsequently send them for um, what's called a bubble echo, which is the test that they would use to try and identify a PFA. And in a proportion of those patients, they do identify that. And then they can make decisions about whether they want to have that closed, whether they want to modify their diving, or, or whether they might want to stop diving. Okay. And then before we come on to talk about the management, because the management of decompression sickness and, and uh, arterial gas embolism, from our perspective, is, is probably quite similar. Yeah. Should we go on to talk about what a, an arterial gas embolism is and, sure. and how that presents? So what's, what's different about this? What's the, the physiology involved with this? Sure. So, um, so decompression sickness is all about gas coming out of solution. An arterial gas embolism is about a bubble of gas in the arterial circulation that has got there not from gas coming out of solution. And in general, it's due to some form of barotrauma. So a typical story for an arterial gas embolus would be someone who has had a rapid ascent with uncontrolled breathing, has then had some pulmonary barotrauma, so they might complain of some chest pain. And then very soon after diving, within seconds or minutes, they have developed neurological symptoms, which might look very similar to a stroke. So that would be the typical story for an arterial gas embolism. And essentially, 
that bubble has got there by whatever means, very commonly from pulmonary barotrauma, and now is blocking a portion of the central nervous system circulation to give those symptoms just like a thrombotic stroke might. Okay, fine. So diver, rapid ascent, possibly with some respiratory distress, and then a rapid onset of quite gross neurological symptoms. We're going to be thinking arterial gas embolus, and then something that is perhaps a little bit more prolonged than that, without that rapid onset timeline, might be leaning more towards decompression sickness. That's that's exactly it. And uh, sometimes it's not always clear because mm-hmm. the, a, a rapid ascent after a long deep dive will put you potentially at risk of both. And the other important thing is that would be a typical story. But in fact, if you wanted to artificially give yourself an arterial gas embolism, you wouldn't necessarily need to ascend rapidly. All you would need to do is to hold your breath against a, a closed glottis to cause your... Uh, and as your lungs expand, they get the pulmonary barotrauma. The really important thing to realize with regards to sort of barotrauma and a resultant arterial gas embolus is that because as we described with Boyle's law, the greatest volume changes happen near the surface. They can happen even in very shallow, even at very shallow depths if you're breathing pressurized gas. So there are case reports of um, people who have dived to two or three meters in a pool during part of their sort of obviously introduction to diving training um, and then have ascended without breathing out and have developed pulmonary barotrauma as a result of that. Wow okay so it really doesn't take that much then? No. So now so we we know that these are two different pathologies and and there's two uh, different timelines and and elements going on here but um, what would be good is if we talk about the management of of how we approach them both. And you've already said there might be a bit of interplay between the two conditions. It might be very difficult for us to determine exactly which of them is going on. But fortunately, management is pretty similar from from our perspective as as first responders. So let's say we've had a call as an ambulance crew to meet an incoming perhaps Coast Guard team or Mm. RNLI team that are bringing a diver who's uh, developed some neurological symptoms perhaps some paresthesia symptoms and maybe a bit of shortness of breath or something Mm -hmm. like that what key elements of management do we really need to give to these to these patients so the the absolute most important thing is that if there's a risk that this is being caused by bubbles of gas whether that's dcs or arterial gas embolism in the wrong place these patients should be given high flow oxygen to breathe Okay, um, and that is the most important thing that you can do to start the process of getting rid of that bubble. I'll ask the question that I know some students might be asking, but what if their SATs are ninety eight percent? If their SATs are ninety eight percent, you should still give them high flow oxygen, right? Um, and the reason for that is that you want to have their PO two artificially high because that is what starts the process of getting rid of the excess nitrogen. Fine. So you're you're creating a, a better diffusion gradient in exactly. the alveoli to help them off gas. This Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Fine. So we put them on high flow O2 regardless if we're suspecting arterial gas embolism or, or decompression sickness. What else might we be able to do for these patients? So a couple of other simple things are things like trying to ensure that they uh, don't get cold. 
and uh, your other sort of simple uh, bits of management. We, we might also say we want them to avoid sort of heavy exertion. So if there's no option but for them to clamber up a ladder out of the boat, then you might need to go with that. But if you can get them sat in a, in a position of comfort and ideally avoid them having to walk up a steep cliff path to um, get out of the situation that they're in, then, then that would be the ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, depending on the, on the situation you're there. And then, essentially, you've got to try and gather some information to inform your judgments about whether you think this is diving-related or not diving-related. And then you can speak to us if you need advice regarding that. Okay. So what pertinent things from the history for these patients do you as the duty dive doc really, really want to know? Because... Any remote clinical advice, and we've done episodes on maximising the the efficiency of remote clinical advice in the past, starts with a a, a well-prepared history and ideally as much of the information in detail that the remote clinical advisor is going to want to know. So so what key things from the history would it be really good if we've got ready for you at the end of this phone? It's fantastic if we can take a a perfect history straight from the, the first clinician that we speak to just to reassure everyone, we um, we know that that's not always the case because these these cases are sort of relatively few and far between. And if we get a, um, a if we get a history and we need some more information, we're very happy to ask for that. We would rather hear hear about these potential cases and and have a chance to have a conversation with you and, and gather some more information than hear about them later because it gives us a chance to plan what we might want to do. If, however, you do have the time and the headspace to um, take a really good history, then that is really helpful for us in trying to differentiate between the various different pathologies that we might be dealing with. And the, the most important thing is, as you would with your classic medical history, it's a question of what's happened and the diver's potential other risk factors and comorbidities and all those sorts of questions that you would normally ask. In terms of what happened, though, there's a few extra bits that are diving specific, and it's really useful if you if you can gather that information. The first of those is when this started, exactly what was going on? Because there's a big difference between conditions that start on the way down, conditions that start on the way up, conditions, as we've mentioned already, an arterial gas embolism that started seconds or minutes um, after someone surfaced, or something that started several hours several hours later. So that history of exactly when and what happened with relation to the diving that's been going on is really, really helpful and, and probably essential in terms of us making a decision. In terms of stratifying people's risk for developing DCS, it's also really helpful to have a general impression at least of the depth, duration, and how many dives they've been doing recently. Because that helps us, while it's not absolute, helps us risk stratify patients in our mind. And I suppose if the patient's not able to give that to us normally, if they're with part of a group, then the dive master will be able to tell us the profile they've done and anything that's happened underwater or their dive buddy should probably exactly in general people dive with friends and that information is normally available from someone who's present 
Great. Okay. So we, we're going to get as much information as we can. We're going to give these people high flow to uh, as, a, as a standard through a high flow mask. I've heard before, if we don't have access to high flow oxygen, then if the divers are diving with nitrox, can they, can they have their own nitrox while we get them somewhere that we can give them oxygen? Yeah. So um, nitrox is a gas mixture which contains more oxygen than air. Uh, that is preferable to breathing air. Right, and less nitrogen, I guess, as well. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, perfect. So what about these patients that you've said the bends is incredibly painful, horrible Mm. joint pain and and various things, and most people should be aware that as far as analgesics go, we are definitely not going to give them entonox. That's like Mm. your your cardinal, not going to do that. And uh, and obviously, we know the reason why you're not. You don't want to give them a, an expanding gas with a reasonable proportion of nitrogen in it. But what analgesics would be appropriate for these patients? So, if somebody's in extreme pain, mm. I know a lot of myself and my colleagues might be leaning towards morphine. Would that yeah. be appropriate? I don't see any reason that 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 would be inappropriate. It's just important to have as as good an idea before you give it as to the sort of nature and severity of that pain because obviously you know once you've done your really excellent analgesia en route which i think you should be doing and is is absolutely essential we then see a slightly different picture once they've arrived Mm. in hospital and in in other conditions where there's a neuro component people might be dissuaded from using morphine if possible because it it might impact the neurological assessment is that a concern that you would have in the dive center or is it more more important to analyze these patients so i think um you know from a humanitarian perspective and from a good patient care perspective you you need to manage their pain if they were to have so much morphine that they were to become drowsy and difficult to assess then um then that could prove problematic but that's that's the same for any other condition i don't think we need to do anything drastically different from from what you would normally do and i think my experience from working in the emergency department, in general, people are relatively cautious with the amount of analgesia that they give, um, and patients don't come in completely knocked off. Okay. What about fluids and antiemetics? Is that something we can give, something we should be giving? Yeah, so I think um, you should probably have a, a low threshold for giving fluids in, with, with possibly one caveat, which we might cover later, um, with patients that you think some of their symptoms might be related to immersion pulmonary edema but i think if you if, if you think this is probably dcs then uh, giving fluids to correct dehydration is is a safe and um, useful thing to do and giving antiemetics um, i think is very very useful as well and it doesn't really have downsides that i can see okay. um, we know with regards to the fluids that divers are often dehydrated and that is because as you know when you redistribute your fluid by going either swimming or diving, you diarrhoes to an extent. Because divers know that, um, and they might be, particularly in the UK, zipped into a dry suit that they don't want to ruin by peeing in it, um, <laughs> they, they quite often, what they what they would say, dive a bit dry. Right, they, okay. They'll have less to drink than they normally would so that they don't need a wee when they're diving. So it's common to find divers a bit dehydrated. And I guess that's the same mechanism as as cold diuresis in hypothermia that you've got generated artificial hypertension. 
Is it from immersion? Yeah, so it's fluid. fluid um, so diuresis from immersion yeah. um, is due to uh, redistribution of fluid from the from the lower body into the thorax, where it then sort of slightly increases your pressures and uh, then stimulates your uh, baroreceptor response to stimulate diuresis. So put them on O2, give them some fluids, yep. about a litre over a transport time. Is probably, that I think that's probably very reasonable. Yeah, not a, no problem with that. Okay, so sort of rehydration IV fluids, possibly an anti-emetic mm-hmm. on no particular one to avoid. We would use ondansetron. I think ondansetron is reasonable. Perfect. Analgesia, if appropriate, definitely not entinox. And then uh, I've seen some things about positioning patients. Mm. So talking particularly particularly in arterial gas embolus, about gas bubbles mm. and we're concerned about them going to the to the brain. Yeah. Is there a position we should transport them? Yeah, so that's another um, sort of interesting and a potentially contentious um, issue. There's a theoretical risk of someone who is vertical um, of a bubble being more likely to go into their um, cerebral circulation. But in practice, whether that is particularly where that actually does happen is is probably less certain i think it's perfectly reasonable to transport patients sort of semi-reclined in a position of comfort okay um, with those other things going on it is perfectly reasonable and certainly going to be um, a lot easier than trying to get them head down legs up in the back of an ambulance so on the topic of transport, I work for a HEMS organisation. I can't can't do a podcast without strong arming that in there somewhere. We might be asked to fly these patients from particularly rural positions. Mm. Um, is there a legitimate concern about flying them as low as possible, or is there a legitimate concern about you know flying these people at height? Because obviously you can understand the concern potentially that. This is a pressure-related issue. Mm. We're aware that the higher up you go, the, the lower the relative pressure. Yeah. Is that going to make this worse if we're flying these patients at 1,000 feet versus 500 feet? Yeah, so um, people worry that um, exposing these patients to a further reduced atmospheric pressure is going to um, increase their uh, either risk of developing DCS or um, worsen their symptoms. In practice, the pressure changes over the, the heights that you're talking about that, that HEMS might feasibly fly in this country, it's going to be a very small difference in pressure. And if that, if flying at a normal height that you would enables you to get to your destination quicker, then that is probably more important than any sort of small minor impact from flying at 500 feet Mm. or a thousand feet so we would rather that patients got here quickly and safely Um, and in the uk the mountains are not so big that um, that's probably going to cause adverse consequences for that patient would it be worth talking then about some of the other medical problems that that might affect divers you've already mentioned immersion pulmonary edema yeah could you tell me what that is and and what how we might recognize that yeah so immersion pulmonary edema is a it's probably something that's been under recognized over uh, a, a, until relatively recently and there's been some um, some good work 
in sort of recent decades to try and um, improve our understanding and awareness of of it. Essentially, the the mechanism for immersion pulmonary edema, similar to what we were talking about with diuresis earlier, is that when you put yourself into water and horizontal blood redistributes from your peripheries more centrally, particularly from the legs into the thorax. And uh, this can also be exacerbated in um, cold water because as well as that redistribution, you've got peripheral vasoconstriction, which kind of exacerbates that. Now, in a young, fit and healthy person, they might get sort of a transient increase in their heart rate and stroke volume and then uh, diaries that out and they manage that change very easily. In patients where they might have slightly less cardiovascular reserve, they might not cope as well with that, with those sort of fairly rapid fluid shifts. Um, and that's where they can run into trouble. So either these might be patients with a diagnosed cardiac condition, like, for example, angina. Hmm. So we know that their heart is likely to be abnormal. Or we frequently get calls related to what we think is immersion pulmonary edema from i don't know your classic patient might be a 60 year old who's light smoker on a statin and with some hypertension so they don't have a diagnosed cardiac abnormality but their heart is not as um, fit and healthy and able to cope with those fluid shifts as it probably was when they were a teenager so with those patients the fluid shift can essentially overwhelm their ability to manage it properly. And as you know, just like in, so, you know, heart failure is obviously a mismatch between the demands of the heart and its and its outputs, that this is exactly the same process. And, and as you know, that can cause um, back pressure and pulmonary edema to form. So the typical story for someone with immersion pulmonary edema is that usually within sort of, five minutes to an hour of starting diving they develop shortness of breath um, and typically at that point they'll come to the surface and then um, they might have you know some frothy sputum and all those sorts of things that we think about with pulmonary edema if you get there in time they might have some crackles and essentially you manage that as you would for someone with pulmonary edema but bearing in mind that they're probably going to correct that themselves once the insult is removed. Okay. So a bit of oxygen, it wouldn't necessarily be completely unreasonable if you are absolutely certain of the diagnosis to give someone some diuretics, but probably there's going to be so much uncertainty that you're not going to want to do that in a hurry. But very often these patients, by the time they get to us, their symptoms have resolved. And I guess would there be the risk that the distress underwater has caused a rapid ascent and they're at risk of one of the other pathologies exactly. we just talked about. All these things often sort of come together and trying to unpick them is, is as I said before, why our job is um, potentially so challenging tricky. and yeah. also interesting. Yeah. You talked about the kind of classic diver that that might affect. Yeah. Is there a minimum depth that they'd need to be at for that to affect them? No, so the interesting thing with immersion pulmonary edema is that it's not related to depth whatsoever. The same fluid shifts happen if you're, if you're immersed in water at the surface. So it's also something that is probably 
until recently been under-recognized in people like triathletes swimming in cold water and other people as you know cold water swimming is becoming sort of more and more fashionable and common mm. um and uh and these patients are just as at risk so um it's the sort of swimming element rather than the diving element that puts you at particular risk but the reason it's important is it's something that is is probably relatively common compared with the diving related issues what about so so next on the list of other things that we might need to talk about or be aware of is barotrauma you've yeah. already kind of touched on it a little bit but if we can just uh co- cover that so what's happening yeah. in, in barotrauma so we talked yeah so we've talked a little bit about barotrauma and barotrauma is all related to Boyle's law so gas-filled spaces getting squashed under pressure and if you think about the gas-filled spaces in the in the body um you've obviously got the bowels well the bowels have some gas in but they're also quite squashy so we don't tend to see particular problems with regards to that the places that we do sometimes see problems are sinuses and inner ear and anyone who's um, gone diving or even dived or even swum down to the bottom of a, a pool can sometimes feel that pressure on their ears and you know that you equalize that by um, typically holding your nose and, and mm. blowing out and, um, and what you're doing there is blowing some air into the eustachian tubes to um, equalize that pressure so if we think about ears first, a typical story for barotrauma of the ear is that it happens on descent. Mm-hmm. The reason for that is that the eustachian tube is kind of like a, a bit like a whoopee cushion. And as you ascend, air tends to get out of that relatively easily, but it's getting the air in to equalize that. So if patients developed ear pain on the way down, um, barotraumas probably are our top um, differential there. And then unfortunately, sinuses are kind of the opposite so um, sinus barotrauma typically happens on ascent and that's really really difficult because the patient needs to at some point come to the surface and if air is has got into the sinuses but is now trying to expand and struggling to get out that can be really really painful um, and you know can occasionally cause disruption to the the sinuses the symptoms then typically improve once the once the air has escaped but often there's some residual pain and, and inflammation. Um, so that's sinuses and ears. The other places is um, fillings. So people might know, particularly if they're involved in diving, that it's important to have good dental health because if there's a bit of air either in your tooth or underneath a filling, typically on descent, that little bit of air will try to squash and you can either just get um, sort of quite severe dental pain um, or you might even get uh, a sort of uh, filling or tooth um, cracking under, mm. under that pressure. And then uh, maybe the most important one in, in terms of what we've been talking about today is the, the lungs. So pulmonary barotrauma is something that happens on ascent. And the reason for that is that if you're breathing pressurized gas under water, you can take a full lungful up to your normal lung volume. And if you were to then ascend to the surface without breathing out, that gas is trying to expand, and that's what causes the barotrauma. And then that can then cause a connection between the, the air and the blood vessel and cause an arterial gas embolism. Um, patients can also get uh, sort of surgical emphysema mm. and a pneumothorax as well. This is probably a good, a good spot to kind of talk about 
things that we might want a patient to go to the emergency department for often before seeing us as the diving doctor we could probably manage um a, a patient with a pneumothorax here um at, at the facility that we have but we are not a hospital we don't have things like x-ray we don't currently have access to ultrasound mm-hmm. so making a clinical diagnosis of a, a pneumothorax um, is, is very different from what you would want in your standard emergency department so if we had a patient with a story that we thought might be a, an arterial gas embolus as a result of pulmonary barotrauma what we would probably do is aim to meet that patient in the nearest emergency departments, do our assessment with regards to the chest there, do any interventions that we need. And then having done that, it might be safe for us to offer hyperbaric oxygen treatment for whatever the result of that has been. Okay. And I guess it's also worth uh, mentioning, and we've got it written down, is to is to just discuss the fact that Divers can have medical events under the water. So just because a diver is presenting to us in their diving kit, we shouldn't forget to screen for other medical problems because divers can have MIs underwater. They can have strokes underwater. Exactly. And uh, and also they can have any medical event within the window that we might that might make us suspicious that it's DCS or arterial gas embolism. And could have them concomitantly, I guess, if if they've had a medical event under the water as well, and it's a bit of a chicken and egg mm. type situation. Absolutely. So, other things that uh, we think about with uh, other medical problems that, that divers can present with, or other problems they can present with, hypothermia, drowning, obviously, is a big risk, uh, and and is probably a contributor to a, a lot of diving diving fatalities and and trauma. We we've done a hypothermia podcast in the past. We are planning to do a drowning one, uh, and obviously trauma is is entirely re- reliant on the circumstances that they've mm. they've become injured in. But are there any uh, little nuggets on those aspects that you, you you feel we should be aware of? No, I don't think so. Essentially, you know, these things are all things that can either muddy the waters in terms of us trying to make our diagnosis, and they're not necessarily, as you've mentioned, diving specific. Um, they might Fine. be related to um, being in the water, but not that's not necessarily mean that they're part of our sort of umbrella of diving conditions. Okay. And then finally then to finish, nitrogen narcosis. This mm. is something I asked you about because it's something I've read in a lot of the diving medical literature, but it's possibly not something that we are going to see as first responders or yeah. be particularly aware of. So so what's nitrogen narcosis? So nitrogen narcosis is cognitive impairment that comes about as a result of breathing an increased partial pressure of nitrogen. So a typical story for that might be um, a uh, recreational diver diving air who's gone down to 30 meters or 35 meters and then has had some symptoms and they're classically described as feeling a bit drunk those the important thing to recognize about nitrogen narcosis is that um, it resolves once the um, once the insult is removed so if that diver then ascends to 20 meters they should start to feel better pretty quickly the risk with nitrogen narcosis is not necessarily that it itself is dangerous but it causes people to make bad decisions um, and as I mentioned to you before we started recording, there are these stories of people 
feeling drunk and doing things like taking their regulator out and trying to offer it to a passing fish um, and then getting themselves into difficulty. Right, um, yeah. I think that's all of the conditions. We've talked about the relevant management. We understand now what we're looking for and the assessments that we're going to do. So just before we we wrap up then, the reason that I'm here at DDRC, you, you guys host the British hyperbaric association advice line of which as you mentioned you're you're an advisor on so you're the people that we will be calling for advice but you also have a hyperbaric chamber downstairs but can access and refer into the national network of them how would we get in contact with you and and what might the journey from us to yourselves look like to eventually ending up in a in a hyperbaric chamber potentially yeah, as you mentioned, we hold the phone line, which is a openly available phone line, which is manned twenty four seven for anyone who's um, got a potential diving medicine emergency within the UK, and we field phone calls from all over the UK. Um, and then, if specialist diving medicine intervention assessment or treatment is required, we tend to refer people to their nearest dive medicine specialist hyperbaric chamber of which there are around five that would take diving emergencies in England. Obviously we are one of them so sometimes we end up depending on the diver's location referring to ourselves and if that happens if we don't think the patient needs to go to the emergency department first then we will direct the patient to be transported here. Sometimes people come driven by by a friend or someone they've been diving with if they've got mild symptoms. Sometimes they come in the back of an ambulance with their high flow oxygen and uh, sometimes they get flown in by the Coast Guard or air ambulance organisations. We then do our assessment in our in our clinical space, which is just like any other clinical space you can imagine. Probably what's different there from what we might normally do in an emergency department is, is a very detailed neurological examination and a very and a detailed balance assessment because we know that those are things that potentially are uh, amenable to treatment if we think that this patient is going to benefit from treatment for a diving related condition then what we offer is something called hyperbaric oxygen therapy and as we we'll go and have a look at the chamber Essentially what that is, is a big metal tube that we can put the patient and an attendant in and then put them under pressure. And a typical treatment would be um, putting the patient down to a depth of the equivalent of 18 metres of seawater. So that's the best part of um, three atmospheres of pressure. And then they're breathing um, 100% oxygen at, at that pressure. So the partial pressure of oxygen they're breathing is getting on for three atmospheres. Um, The reason for that is that um, there might be some impact on shrinking the bubbles from a physical pressure effect, but probably the majority of what we're doing is providing that diffusion gradient to get rid of the excess nitrogen um, and getting rid of the bubbles that way. Okay, well, uh, let's head down, have a look at the chamber, and I'll try and describe to people what what it is we're seeing and what you've the, the, the setup that you've got downstairs. Yeah, great. So we're down here now in the uh, in the decompression chamber room, which is a fairly large room with a reasonable number of metal tanks in it, isn't it? So in front of us is the is the main hyperbaric chamber, which uh, 
it looks surprisingly like a submarine. So, mm. you know, it, it's probably the length of a bus with an, an airlock connected to it and a number of portholes and more pipes than I can count coming out of it. It looks very, uh, very steampunk. Um, so how would patients come to be, to, to be placed in uh, the hyperbaric chamber and, and roughly how long are they going to be in there for? Yeah, so um, as we've talked about already, patients, uh, if, we, if we think we need to assess, assess them as the, the dive medic, we'll ask them to uh, come here and then we'll, we'll see them in our clinical room that uh, just looks like any other, any other clinical room in any other clinical area um, that you'd see. And we do our full and thorough assessment and decide whether they might benefit from hyperbaric oxygen treatment. And if we think that they will, then we'll um, bring them around and, and pop them in the chamber with an attendant. And then they get uh, sealed into the chamber and put down under pressure. Yeah. Um, and then whilst they're under pressure, they're breathing the 100% oxygen um, that we talked about is our sort of primary mode of treatment. A typical first treatment for a diver who's attended acutely will be anywhere between 6 and 15 hours, depending on how their symptoms respond over the course of that treatment. And then commonly, we will uh, assess them the following day and may well end up treating them multiple times over subsequent days, depending on whether their symptoms continue to improve with what we're doing. Like you said, there's an attendant in uh, in there with them. It's surprisingly big in there. There's about four or five chairs plus space for a, for a stretcher bed. Sure. So you, as the attendant, is going to be placed in there with the uh, with the person who's who's undergoing the therapy. Yeah. So we usually have so we have a separate attendant, um, and then the dive doctor is usually on the outside, right, um, passing the pizza through the small hatch. <laughs> Um, to keep everyone happy on the inside okay so you can once you're in there you can put things in and out can you? yeah so obviously the the main purpose of the of the hatch is to pass any required medical equipment in there. right but in practice we also use it for passing in food and other other tidbits one final thing that that we we maybe didn't cover upstairs is is to do with the diver's body so if somebody is coming to see you at, at ddrc as we've said divers normally dive in pairs or in groups mm. are they regardless of whether or not they're symptomatic are you going to want to see people have, that have done the same dive profile as, as the diver yeah thanks that's, that's a really good point it's often very very useful for the dive body to come for all sorts of reasons to give us a story about what's happened um, and to tell us a bit more about what the dive was like in addition to that we know that if one person has done a very similar dive profile and has developed symptoms. That other person is at risk of developing symptoms as well. Even if they're asymptomatic, we may have a discussion with them about whether they would like to go in the chamber and have treatment at the same time if we think that they've got um, a reasonable risk of developing symptoms subsequently. Well, thanks very much for having me down here to DDRC. That's been really, really interesting. And uh... And hopefully that's a, a conversation that lots of people are going to benefit from. So thank you for having me. That's a pleasure. Come back anytime. We've talked a lot about the different pathologies that divers will follow. And it would be really difficult to summarise everything that we've discussed. But let's think about those key takeaways that we're going to do if we go to a diver in distress. We're going to give divers high flow oxygen if there's a chance of diving illness. 
We're going to keep them in as comfortable a position as possible and minimise movement unless it's unsafe to do so, ideally keeping them in a semi-recumbent position. We're going to analgise divers where appropriate, but clearly avoiding entonox. And we'll consider IV rehydration fluids as well as antiemetics. We need to take a detailed history of the timeline of their symptoms, as well as the diver's dive profile. We need to be having an early conversation with a duty dive doctor to risk stratify these patients together and come up with a plan. If we're taking them to a specialist centre, we need to bring or otherwise arrange for their dive buddy to attend the assessment as well. And don't forget to bring their dive computers along. If divers are severely unwell, isolate and keep together their equipment as there may be an investigation into what went wrong. Try to remember how many turns it's taken to turn off their oxygen cylinders and document this in your paperwork. And don't forget to use the individuals around you. Dive masters, members of the RNLI or Coast Guard may have seen these presentations before, so use your multidisciplinary team. And finally, don't forget that divers can have medical problems unrelated to diving whilst underwater as well. Don't forget to screen for other illnesses and remember that they may be presenting together or partially masked by symptoms of diving-related illness. But that's it for this one. Thanks very much for listening if you've got this far. As always, you can access the references that we've used to compile this episode on generalbroadcast.org.uk. We'll also put some of the pictures of the decompression chamber and our time at DDRC up there. A massive thanks to all of the support that we've had in compiling this podcast from our experts. From John Kendray from His Majesty's Coast Guard, Tony Norton from Purple Turtle Diving and Felix from DDRC Healthcare. But that's it for this month. We'll catch you next time.